As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, Brexit Breakdown. British Prime Minister Theresa May faced some of the toughest days of her political career this past week over the Brexit plan her government has negotiated with Brussels. First, she was forced to cancel a vote on the plan in Parliament when it became clear she didn't have the support she needed. If we went ahead and held the vote tomorrow, the deal would be rejected by a significant margin. We will therefore defer the vote schedule for tomorrow and not proceed to divide the House at this time. Then she faced a rebellion in her own Conservative Party and a no-confidence motion. A change of leadership in the Conservative Party now will put our country's future at risk and create uncertainty when we can least afford it. May and her supporters defeated the motion, but the fate of her Brexit plan remains uncertain. She was even openly mocked in Parliament. I've listened very carefully to what has been said in this chamber and out of it. As the March deadline for Britain to leave the European Union draws closer with no agreement in place, some Brits have been discussing the idea of a second referendum on Brexit. To understand what that would mean, we spoke to Eloise Todd of the group Best for Britain, which opposes Brexit. Hello. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So you're from Yorkshire, you're from the North, and it was largely pro-Brexit. What do you think the single biggest issue was driving the vote in the North? From everything we've looked at and studied and just from focus groups as well as conversations with people I grew up with and members of my family that voted to leave, it's clear that people voted to leave the EU for many, many different reasons. Some of them indeed wanting to kick back at this idea of of a very faraway place creating laws that we would submit to. But more often than not, people were reacting against years of inequality, years of lost opportunity, especially in the regions outside London. One of the curious things about the UK is that despite being one of the global biggest economies, that has never really sparked enough growth and development across every corner of the UK. I can remember growing up in East Yorkshire and then going to Newcastle to university to study politics and learning in a lecture that the UK was then the fourth biggest economy in the world and I actually couldn't believe it. And I remember at that point thinking, well, 
the south and the southeast must be really, really rich because I don't see any of that in the place where I grew up and all the other cities that I visited in the north, which was where I really knew the best. And so it's been like decades of not having enough opportunity for everybody in the country. And then we've it's led to a vote where people have kicked back for many, many different reasons. Did you have family members who supported leave? I do. I do. And one of my best friends that I grew up with, I remember when I told a room full, my mum's kitchen full of friends, we were all having a glass of wine, and I said, I'm leaving my job, which was big news because I'd been at the One Campaign for nine years and absolutely loved it there. And they said, why? And I said, well, I feel compelled to take up this offer that I've had a little bit out of the blue to keep the door open to staying in the EU if the deal we negotiate is not good enough. And there was a stony silence fell and everybody looked at each other. And then my friend said to me, I voted leave. And what followed was a really lovely, respectful conversation, like viewed by lots of our friends in silence. Well, I said, well, I'd be really interested to hear why. And all of her reasons were rational and thoughtful and she'd educated herself by watching the debates on the TV. She'd had a particular experience with the NHS and not being able to get quality care for her son and the idea that, you know, the NHS is under pressure, there's too many people and we need to stop freedom of movement to make sure there's enough care for people in the UK. So all quite rational but at the same time as a lot of us have learned since nobody knew just how many lies were told during that campaign and nobody could have foreseen that every single form of Brexit would leave us poorer and would actually decimate our NHS and one of the things that's happened since the vote in 2016 is the exodus of doctors and nurses who are worried for their future, those that come from the EU, and they prop up our entire health service. And so actually, instead of being a boon to the NHS, any form of Brexit threatens to undermine the very people and fabric of what holds up that precious institution. And none of that could have been known before that vote. How did you come to leave one, which is the humanitarian campaign that was started by Bono some years ago? When it came to this position to start Best for Britain, it was actually a friend from the One campaign who called me in the days after the UK referendum result. And we were all obviously shocked and reeling from the result. I, in particular, had a very uh, raw reaction to it because I was grieving my close friend Joe Cox, who was murdered in the last few days of that campaign. So I was in a very funny headspace about what had just happened. And my friend called me and said, I know an MP. He uh, is really devastated by what's happened around the referendum. And he wants to talk to people who've worked at NGOs and who also know a bit about the EU. And I thought of you, would you talk to him? And that MP was David Lammy, one of the biggest champions we have um, in this fight, in that cause. And I'd never met him before. And we had a chat and I told him all of the different ideas I would have for him and the ways that they could approach it. 
And the movement at that point had, in some ways, understandably, kind of split and there was searching for what to do. And one half of it was saying we must overturn the results, we must actually redo the referendum. And the other half of it was saying we have to absolutely accept what's happened and we have to go for a soft form of Brexit. And I said to him that I thought that neither of those approaches would work and actually it's a two-year process when they eventually kick it off and they should allow the government to go and negotiate and not fight that because they had won the mandate to negotiate, but that the message should be, let's see how they do. Let's constantly compare what they bring back to the deal we currently have and then let's do what's best for Britain. And that was the origin of the name of the organisation. So we essentially filled a little bit of a gap in the market in those early days Um, and then we eventually launched in the spring of 2017. Let's go back to the moment when Brexit passes and you mentioned term passing but just in case our listeners don't remember who Joe Cox was, can you introduce her to us? Yeah, Joe Cox was a British Labour MP who got elected in 2015 So she'd been in the job for a year. She was passionate about representing her constituents in Yorkshire. And she had been a mate of mine for years. And actually on the day she was killed, we were just about to set off to go and spend the weekend with her and many other friends when we got the news that she'd been attacked. And you just mentioned that it was just a few days before the Brexit vote passed. So where were you when Brexit passed and and what went through your mind? Well, the day before, we'd done a tribute to to Joe. So that had kind of occupied my time and my headspace right up to the 22nd. So I wasn't engaged in the actual referendum campaign. I, I thought that it would be close, but I, like many people, I thought we would just scrape it, but that it would be okay. And then I stayed with a friend that night and I watched the news, went to bed. It was too early to call exactly where it was going. I went to bed extremely early because I was quite emotionally exhausted. And I woke up at 3am and I looked at where the votes were and leave were about 800,000 votes ahead. And I just thought, oh my God, you know, they count the cities first. The rural areas are harder and take longer to count. And so that gap is only going to widen as it did. And so the writing was on the wall. And then I woke up about seven in the morning and it was confirmed. And I remember watching the news and seeing Nigel Farage and this kind of group of skinhead thugs around him, all these braying men all whites, all of a certain age. And I just thought, that's not our country. Our country is so much richer than that, so much more diverse. And those voices that shout so loudly don't represent everybody. And so much fear has been at the heart of all the campaigning. It's a real tragedy where we've ended up, and it didn't have to be that way. Gina Miller, who was one of the first campaigners as well about reconsidering the vote, was met with huge amounts of personal racist vitriol for her campaign. Has that continued? And have you seen personal attacks for 
looking into the democracy behind the Brexit vote? Yeah, Gina is a very brave campaigner who's done amazing things to change the course of our nation's history in the last couple of years and to give the opportunities for us all to campaign in this fight. In terms of my own experience, I've certainly had a few threats. Uh, It's not been something that has dogged me excessively and I've sensed a, a shift, I think, in the days when we started the campaign early in 2017, there was a real sense among some in the media that it was open season, that anybody that would question the path, it was fair game to kind of call them such names and use really emotive language. And it does seem to me that we've moved on a little bit from that as the reality of Brexit has played out. And I think actually the media... MPs, the public, understand more and more that it's just really hard to deliver this thing called Brexit. It's like a Rubik's Cube that can't be solved. If you want to leave the EU, it will do a certain amount of harm to the country. And it's become clearer and clearer to people. And with that has come more of an acceptance of challenging the very idea of whether we should go ahead or not. Why do you think the negotiation with the EU has been so difficult? I think for various reasons. I think the government could have tried to build a consensus in Parliament for the kind of Brexit it wanted to deliver before it even embarked on negotiations, but it did none of those things. And we actually didn't even have anything resembling a deal until July 2018, more than a year after the negotiations were triggered. So I think the government has definitely made some missteps, but there's a lot of focus on Theresa May and there's a lot of focus on the government and the kind of shambolic way that they've definitely handled things. But in a sense, that detracts from the impossibility of Brexit and the fact that actually it is a conundrum that is hard to solve. If you want to leave the EU, there's two main ways you can do that. You can remain completely tethered to a lot of the laws, the so-called Norway model, be in the EEA, the benefits are that you at least don't completely undermine your economy, you only lose a few percentage points of GDP, but it's not entirely frictionless trade. But of course the negative is, for a country that apparently voted to take back control, you then submitting yourself to rules made by 27 other countries. The other kind of Brexit is a much harder Brexit where you leave the economic structures of the EU so you can negotiate your own trade deals. But actually, that does severe economic harm to the tune of 7, 8, 10%. And in some areas of the country, ironically, the, the, the hardest areas and some of the poorest areas, that would be up to 14 points off the local GDP. And that's the hard Brexit if you were to come up to March 29th without a deal. Well, I don't think we'll get that far because our parliament won't let it happen. There are many, many responsible MPs who understand the danger of getting to a no-deal situation. And I think the political pressure on the government would now be absolutely 
unbelievable and it would be unimaginable for the government to simply sail us over that 11pm on the 29th of March deadline with no deal. And one of the other things that happened this week was the ruling of the European Court of Justice, which confirmed what we all kind of knew, but it's good to get it confirmed legally, that actually we have the absolute right as a nation to revoke Article 50, to withdraw the letter that sparked the negotiations if we want to. So we don't have to go ahead with Brexit if we don't want. So if it got to the 28th of March or even the morning of the 29th and we had absolutely no deal, the parliament was in chaos, sure, the government could choose to go over the line and absolutely go off that cliff and wreak absolutely enormous self-harm to the economy and to families across this country. But they could also revoke Article 50. And I find it absolutely inconceivable that Parliament won't move to pressure the government to do that. In fact, there would be moves to remove the government if it was going to make that threat, I'm sure. But how would they do it in a democratic fashion? I mean, how would they, couldn't they unilaterally decide? Who would say it's March 29th, 11 a.m. rather than 11 p.m.? we're cancelling Article 50. Who would be able to say that? The government would be able to say that. I mean, I've just painted a very extreme scenario. I don't think we'll get that far. Um, I think that what's happening right now is more and more colleagues in the parliament have understood that there is simply no majority for the government's deal, as Theresa May herself acknowledged yesterday by withdrawing uh, the votes. And that's why you're seeing in the press and on the TV and in the media, there's more and more talk now of what we've been campaigning for since earlier this year, which is to put it back to the people. So you argue that a second vote is the democratic thing to do, but critics are saying the opposite. They're saying you're arguing for referendum because you weren't happy with the results. Explain how you feel that it's more democratic to hold a second vote. I think the truth is that the country has changed its mind The will of the people was a famous headline used by the Daily Mail in 2017, saying we've got to respect the will of the people. It might have even been 2016 after the vote. And the Brexiteers don't really use that expression anymore. They talk about respecting the result of the referendum. And that's because the will of the people has shifted, and it's shifted pretty enormously. We've done polling for almost two years since we started And our latest big study showed a split of 56% of the country wanting to stay in versus 44% that wanted to leave. YouGov has just put out a poll this week. It shows a 62% to 38% majority for people wanting to stay in. And by the way, we also asked people whether they want to have a final say on the deal, whether they want the people to have a final say and two-thirds of the country want to have a final say. So when you're looking at this situation with Parliament in gridlock, with no particular majority for a single form of Brexit, and the country is shifting in droves towards wanting to stay in, you have to ask yourself, how could it be democratic to actually steam ahead in that situation? And of course, I have, and we have at Best of Britain, a particular point of view, but this would be a fair way to decide it, and we could... It's not impossible that the other side would win, of course, but this seems to be the only way to get out of the gridlock. 
So if there is no second vote, what would the political situation look like? If there is no second vote, I fail to see how any particular Brexit can gather a majority within Parliament at this stage. There was a point at which a softer Brexit, a kind of Norway solution, was gaining a little bit of attention. But people understand that one of the reasons Theresa May's deal is so unpopular is that it makes us a rule taker on various aspects of the economy. So it means our goods, our capital, our financial markets, the freedom of movement of people, all of those laws would be decided, dictated by 27 other countries. I just, you know, the idea that that's in any way a feasible option for a sovereign huge country like the UK is absolute fallacy. Were you surprised that Theresa May didn't hold the vote? I mean, we'd been told so many times that she was going ahead, but yet we knew that she would lose by anything from 50 to 100 votes. So on the one hand, the political logic screamed, well, surely she won't do that because she'll lose enormously. But then the messages right up to, you know, 10 o'clock that morning were that she was going to go ahead. And so with so little time, we were preparing for that vote to happen. And we thought, well, maybe she's defied so many laws of political gravity, she thinks she can defy another one and have a huge defeat um, and come back again. But in the end, political gravity had not gone upside down and she was convinced that she would lose by a big majority, as the rest of us thought, and she decided to pull the vote. But she's now weaker than ever, less credibility than ever, and she's currently doing the rounds of Europe, trying to get a concession to come back next week and say, look, it's all different now. Let me ask you a logistics question about mm-hmm. Best for Britain. How are you financed? We are financed by the great British public, who are fantastic at giving for this cause. We have money from high net worth individuals. We've had different foundations give us money. But really, a quarter of our money, I think, has come from crowdfunding. And during the election last year, for example, we were really proud to be the biggest political crowdfunder in British history. We raised £413,000 and spent that within the period of time. I know that for your US listeners, that's a small amount of money when it comes to campaign finance, but our laws are really different here and the limits are much harsher. So we've done a mixture, really, of uh, seeking support from people of means, but also crowdfunding from people across the country. You did get a rather large contribution from Open Society and George Soros, which has drawn criticism, because there are those who say that that amounts to foreign intervention, political intervention, How do you respond to that? I'd say that it's been about a quarter of our money this year from George Soros, and we're extremely grateful for the contribution and proud also of that contribution towards opening up the debate here um, and making sure that we have a full democratic debate 
on all the options available to people. And so spreading the awareness about what we can actually do as a country is really not controversial and something that's been absolutely necessary to make sure that the people of this country know what their options are. You've said that when you started the campaign, the chances of a second vote were very, very small, and now they're almost 50%. What do you think changed? Yeah, I mean, when I first started, I kind of put the chances at 5%, but I always knew that by summer of 2018, things would start to change. Now, we've been working really hard. Partners have been working really hard. There's some amazing campaigns out there. Lots of great people working really hard on this. But as well as those efforts, I have to say, our biggest attribute, if you like, has been Brexit itself. It's simply impossible to deliver the promises that were made in 2016. It's just not possible to leave the EU and for the country to benefit. It does us harm on the international stage. It does us harm in terms of whether we can negotiate trade deals or not. And it does us harm to our market access um, for all the kind of just-in-time manufacturing we do in this country. So really, it was always going to get to a point where the reality of Brexit was going to kind of take hold. And I think that's why we're in a strong position right now. What do you think the chances are of a second vote that once again votes for Brexit? I think it's going to be a fight to secure the vote. I think if we secure the vote, we know the path to winning. Crucially, we learned a lot from the 2016 campaign and what went wrong there. And I think also there'll be some very careful scrutiny of the kind of campaigning that will be allowed following the revelations about Cambridge Analytica and the misspend of the Vote Leave campaign and the potential Russian interference. I think that means that our Parliament and our Electoral Commission will be very clear about what's allowed and what's not. And there'll be a lot more scrutiny on that side, which will help. And I think also we need to be bold enough to put the arguments as to why, even if Europe isn't perfect, actually we derive huge benefits from being part of that bloc, not only economically, but also in terms of our rights and our opportunities and our opportunities to work and travel, live and love abroad. And we have to be a lot more positive about that campaign uh, if and when it hopefully comes. Are you taking into account the possibility that your countrymen will vote again against Brexit? And will you accept the results if they do? I think that if we go to a vote, we use the term final say, and it really feels like it needs to close the issue for a generation. I mean, of course, people will always have their beliefs and people will not necessarily stop campaigning. Um, but it feels like this is a conclusion of a, a several-year process in which we have learned for the first time what it would mean to leave. And we have to go through that and talk to people around the country about what it would mean to stay or to go and for that to, for the country to come to some kind of national resolution around that, whichever way 
it goes. So I believe it would have to be fairly conclusive and I would probably down tools myself and not necessarily campaign to get straight back in if we were to lose. We're coming on the holidays. Will you be heading to Yorkshire? I think I will. It's all a little bit up in the air because of Brexit. (laughs) Um, But yes, it looks like I'll be in East Yorkshire. But I haven't told my mum yet, so I better give her a ring. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like for you going home? Do you feel like you're in an endless debate? Is it still an active argument? Or do you feel like you're seeing more people who are more open to hearing your position? Um, People don't massively bring it up. And because I don't see people that often, I I don't exactly want to go in there for the chat. But I've got a few Lever friends that like to have the conversation when I'm there. And so I'll always talk about it. But I kind of don't want to foist it on people. And it's quite nice for me just to catch up with ordinary lives that don't revolve around customs unions and backstops. Eloise, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. First Person is produced by Dan Efron, edited by Rob Sachs, with help this week from Ben Soloway. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>